welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and on this podcast, I speak with researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed practice is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the Long Blue Mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this conversation, I speak with James Dobson, an experienced teacher who has been expertly applying the art and science of learning when teaching students in their first year of school. He discusses the importance of evidence-based practice, the use of scripted programs, and the challenges and rewards of teaching young children. James shares insights on maintaining sanity in the classroom while balancing work and personal life. We also delve into James's weekly timetable, looking at phonemic awareness, phonics, handwriting, writing, and mathematics. I really wanted to get into the nitty-gritty of what his lessons look like day-to-day and how they progress throughout the year. I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. So here is my conversation with James Dobson. Really pumped for today's conversation with James Dobson. James has seen it all when it comes to embedding evidence-based practice from teaching students in the Northern Territory, where English was pretty much a second language, to returning back to Victoria and still experiencing similar challenges. He was a finalist for the Outstanding Teacher uh, Primary Teacher Award as part of the 2022 Victorian Education Excellence Awards. And my guest from episode one of the Knowledge for Teachers podcast, Dr. Russ Fox, has waxed lyrical to me about the rate of opportunities to respond James's students had when he observed some lessons and the dramatic improvement in their behaviour and knowledge when he returned later in the year. Now, I'm always amazed at teachers who are able to continuously teach students in their first year of schooling and not only survive, but thrive. And so when I was digging into this idea of looking at the nuances of teaching kindergarten prep, foundation, reception, whatever you call it, wherever you are, I knew that I had to get James onto the podcast. So James, welcome. And before we dig into how you teach, are you able to tell us a bit about your journey into the position that you're in today? Yeah, thanks, Brendan. Um, it's it's an honour to be here and um, I'm really pleased or flattered by Russ Fox's words and waxing lyrical about me. I was fortunate to do a little bit of work with him where he came and uh, saw my class uh, of prep or foundation students when I was at Tilden Primary School. I, I suppose I got into teaching, didn't really know what else to do after school. I couldn't think of anything else there. I'd done a bit of tutoring when I was in year 11 and 12 and seemed to enjoy that. Uh, ironically, I did a placement for work experience with the police station okay, and then saw how much paperwork they had to do and decided <laughs> that's not something I wanted to do. Little did I know the amount of paperwork that was ahead of me. <laughs> I think what really appealed to me about teaching is that idea of love of learning and continuous learning. I'm a bit of a nerd and a bit of a trivia buff, love doing the quizzes and things like that, and just learning more and more about the world that we live in. And then being able to share that with kids is a pretty uh, privileged position to be in. So I graduated from uh, Melbourne University at the end of 2010, and then taught in Melbourne in in a north suburb for about three years. I was teaching grade three, fours, and one twos in that time. And then 
My wife and I moved up north to Northern Territory to our most Indigenous community. It actually was the largest public school in the second most disadvantaged local government area in Australia. Yeah, right. So pretty eye-opening. And as you were saying, pretty much all the students, English was an additional language for. The local language, Murrumpatha, was the most commonly spoken one. And if you went to the shop, if you went down the street, that's the language that you'd pretty commonly hear. And English was used when a white fellow was around. Yeah. That directed to you. My first year there was very challenging. I learned a lot. I sort of describe it a bit as a crucible Mm -hmm. where you're either going to become a bit stronger and harder or you're going to break. Fortunately, despite signs that I might have broken, I had a really supportive principal and a team of colleagues up there, and that allowed me to actually thrive there. At the end of our first year, we reflected that what we were doing with teaching of reading in particular wasn't working and wasn't having the impact that we were hoping to have with our students. And of course, there are lots of other factors. Attendance was really poor. We used to consider 60% decent attendance. We'd have lots of transients. Home lives were difficult. There were, we'd have, we provided a breakfast and a lunch program. And for some students, that would be their meals of the day, their consistent meals of the day. So there were lots of factors, but it was really important that we didn't let those become excuses. So at the end of that year, we were talking about reading and the Northern Territory government were suggesting, actually, I think it was the Australian government was suggesting that we could use direct instruction and we're providing funding for that. I think it says something of the desperation that we felt that all I knew about direct instruction at that time was, A, you used a scripted program. And the second bit of information that I knew, because I'm a trivia buff and for some reason this stuck in my head, (laughs) was that George W. Bush was reading a direct instruction story when he was informed about September 11. (laughs) So that definitely says something that we were desperate to improve our students' outcomes, that we were willing to go put our hands up and go, yeah, we'll try it, we'll see what it works, how effective it is, because what we're doing isn't having the impact we'd like. Fortunately, over that summer, someone lent me an autobiography called Teaching Needy Kids in a Backward System, and that was written by Siegfried Engelman, or Zig, and he created, with some others, direct instruction. And that was a very eye-opening read, where I realised that this program actually came from a space of care, a space of wanting to improve all students' outcomes, but particularly our most vulnerable students. So through that, we then had a week of training at the start of the year, which was pretty significant to get all the staff at the school. So it was all the teachers, all the assistant teachers, which were mostly uh, local Indigenous people. And for some, many of them, that was the first sort of really formal training that they had to do with how we actually teach our children. So that was a pretty pivotal moment. And then we had lots of visits from people more experienced with direct instruction. They weren't necessarily more experienced teaching Indigenous students or even with the Australian schooling system, but they were experts in the direct instruction program and were able to work with us and we implemented that over the next four years that I was uh, in the Northern Territory. Then I came back down south and walked into a school in central Victoria, uh, which was quite different. 
So I think something about direct instruction when I picked it up, and the program that I'm most familiar with is called Reading Mastery. Yeah. It was how sequential it was in teaching skills and teaching the reading skills. It would be what we now call the science of reading, but it originated well before we started using those terms. So these programs started emerging in the 60s. The way Engelman got into education is quite fascinating as well. He was in marketing and he'd been posed the task of finding out how many times we have to show an ad or expose kids to an ad before student before the children have got that product in their mind Mm. and so he went oh surely education has some answer to this how many exposures we need before we have mastered something and then he turned up crickets there was a big silence there and so that started him exploring well how many times do we actually need to show um, students something before they learn it so he worked in he set up with I think it was Cal Beretta preschool in a very disadvantaged area with mostly black students and there's some great videos of some show-off lessons Mm. in that school then they were involved in the it's called project follow-through which I hadn't heard of until I read his autobiography and that's a massive shame because it is still the largest educational sort of research project and it tracked students, I think it was like 200,000 students over about a 10-year period. And it was looking at the different instructional methods being used and comparing them against each other. And direct instruction was seen as what they termed a basic skills program, so really looking at those fundamental skills of reading and writing and math. And so probably it's no surprise that they outperformed all the others in that area and by quite a significant margin. One of the really surprising aspects, though, was that they also outperformed other schools in the critical thinking and also in the the third category that they were assessing, which was self-esteem, so that well-being side of things. And that's when it was being compared to programs that were specifically designed to increase well-being. So I think it just shows that when students are successful, they have a really positive self-image. And that's one of the things that schools can really absolutely harness is making sure that we're ensuring our students are successful so that they believe and they have the confidence um, to do well. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Project follow through and not just their findings, but just the, the, the politics, politics behind it as well and how, you know, it's basically swept under the carpet because it didn't fit the story, the narrative that they wanted to tell at the time. And it's just such a pity because, you know, you, you look at when this was happening in the, the 60s and 70s and how many lives could have been changed if we actually looked at the evidence then and there and and followed through with uh, what it was directing us towards. In terms of your own experience, like it was, you know, all of the direct instruction programs are heavily scripted. How, how did you find using those programs? Yeah, it's, it's a challenging thing. I think going through university, I got this message of scripts are bad and I should be creating my, my own learning experience for the students directly in front of me. I think there's some idea that the students in front of me are somehow so uniquely different from the students in the class next door or in the school down the road. So I was hesitant with the scripts to start with, 
But I also went with the mindset of, well, if we're going to implement it, I'm going to make sure that I implement it properly because if it doesn't work, I need to make sure that I've actually done the due diligence and it's not working because I'm actually doing a half, half-assed attempt of it. So uh, what I then found was that the script actually freed me up because I was no longer thinking about, okay, what do I need to say next to help their learning? That was there. And so then I could suddenly start thinking about, okay, how can I better deliver that? Or which students are actually being engaged in this? Which students do I need to now pull in? And so in some ways, the script was almost like the science of what to teach with quite a bit of the how to teach built into that. But definitely the drawing the kids in, making sure everyone's on um, the ride with me, making sure that they're engaged, uh, being able to pick up student errors as they're happening. I noticed all that really, I was able to improve that because my mind had that aspect freed up. It's sort of that cognitive load. That doesn't mean to say that it was very smooth at the start Mm. and with working in the Northern Territory, teacher retention is a huge issue. So I would discover that it probably took teachers about a term to become comfortable with using a script. Yeah. So it takes a little bit of time, but then when it happens, it becomes second nature and you can sort of glance at it. You can even, once you're familiar with the programs and know how all the pieces fit in, you can go a little bit off at times to really be responsive to your students' needs. And I think that's what really opened up how I was able to be so much more present with the students and responsive with them because I wasn't thinking about what I was going to have to say next. And I also, the the other side of that was so much of the planning had been done for me. Yeah. So I wasn't then spending an hour after school planning all my reading lessons for the next day and my language, my English language lessons as well because it had been done. So I could actually use that time to think, oh, well, what activity could I use to support that better and focus time otherwise? Yeah. yeah. I'll, you know, workload's a bit of an issue at the moment. So anything we can do to reduce that's pretty, pretty amazing. I like how you've addressed that misconception of, you know, this group's and it's actually freeing you up, whereas a lot of people kind of argue that when you're using scripted programs, it's creating uh, robots and, and teachers, they're just reading the scripts, it's boring. And w- what you're kind of saying is that, well, it's actually because you don't have to think about the sequence of the learning, what you're going to be saying, you're then able to be more responsive to what's actually happening in front of you, not the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. And I, we wouldn't say the same about actors. And they definitely use scripts, but there's a difference between someone just reading the lines and someone, you know, delivering Shakespeare brilliantly. Yeah. It, similarly, we don't say the same about musicians. Yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoy going to the symphony orchestra. They're using the same piece of music that, you know, over a hundred years has been written down in the same way. And yet there is a big difference between the local symphony orchestra and then going seeing Melbourne symphony orchestra and the amazing artistry that they're able to bring to that, even though they're using the same notes on the page. Yeah. And, you know, just touching on that as well is like as teachers, it's pretty well known that we're not really getting the the knowledge that we need 
to be any sort of level of expert when it comes to initial teacher education. And so if we're not having that level of knowledge ourselves, how are we meant to put together these, you know, these really complex sequences of learning for every, like, especially when it comes to uh, primary teachers across all of these different subjects, you need to know how that's going to be sequenced properly. Those misconceptions provide examples and non-examples that feedback, all of this stuff, which it requires a high level of knowledge and, and teachers are expected to not only have that, which they're not getting, but also then be able to produce these resources and lessons that follow that sequence. So yes, it's a tough gig if you're asking teachers to do all of that when they haven't got the knowledge. Especially when we're talking about, you know, you might have a graduate teaching one year level and in the classroom next door, there's someone with 20 years experience. I don't know many other professions where there's the same expectation that Mm. they'll be able to deliver those in exactly the same way. Yeah, good point. So absolutely. And that sequencing of knowledge, I think is very underplayed. It's a really important aspect that we need to carefully craft. And that takes a lot of time and a bit of trial and error as we do it as well. So if we're not learning from the experience of others, then it's a huge wasted opportunity. Yeah. So what has attracted you towards wanting to teach you know, students in their first year of school? What, what's kind of attracted you to that challenge? Yeah. So when I was in central Victoria, so I moved back down to central Victoria to a wonderful school called Tilden. And there I had two years of one, two. So ironically, when I was in university, I thought, yeah, I'll be a five, six teacher. And that's the one classroom that I haven't taught as a classroom (laughs) teacher. So um, I, yeah, I spent some time in the one twos and the foundation teacher decided she was going down a few days. And so I went, well, I'm going to put my hand up for that. And there are a couple of reasons. And I think the biggest reason or one of the biggest reasons was it actually scared me. Yeah. So I, I felt like that was the challenging year. And so there was that opportunity to go and do that thing that scared me rather than just letting it there stay there. And I'm really so pleased that I did. And it's definitely my favorite year level to teach. Yeah. I absolutely enjoyed all the others, but there's something really exciting about having this group of children who've come from different experiences and we have wonderful early childhood education happening in Victoria. So there's lots of really great experiences there, but it's the sort of first formal schooling experience. And then getting that getting that transition right really fascinates me. Uh, part of what also attracted me was my daughter happened to be starting foundation that year at a different school. Yeah. And so I was had a vested interest in seeing what was possible and what could happen. And I think there's also some myths around what students in their first year of school are capable of or should be able to do. And I wanted to explore some of those things. And as someone who'd spent quite a bit of time in grade one, two, grade three, four, uh, seeing the spread of abilities already emerging when they come into grade one you've got kids who you're asked to write a piece and they write four pages of writing and other kids who struggle to write a sentence and Mm. i wanted to see what was possible with narrowing that spread of ranges so that all students are able to have success yeah 
What's a what's a funny experience that you can share with us? Uh, funny experience of teaching prep or foundation. There's there, there's a lot of chaos sometimes to observers. Yeah. I have learnt. I actually learnt this when I was teaching one too. You always let kids go to the toilet. <laughs> yeah. there, there can be gentle reminders of we just have had recess, but the answer will always be yes. Ah. Oh. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I've been in holiday mode for too long. One one interesting experience was the school my daughter was going at had sent home a reader, a reading journal. And on the back of it, it sort of encouraged students to look at pictures to yeah. work out words. And I went, oh, that's, that's not best practice. That's not actually how we learn to read words. And so I went, I'm going to have to go and have a conversation and be that parent and I walked in before school drop off and the two prep teachers turned to me and go oh we saw something you posted on Facebook and instantly my heart sank going what on earth have I posted on Facebook (laughs) and we'd love to chat with you a bit more and so I went all right I happen to have today where I'm not actually needed at school I'm going to pick my daughter up. How about we have a chat this afternoon? And that proved to be a really uh, fruitful conversation where they were so eager to learn more about how we can best support children in reading and how they could change their practices. And I think getting to that like nitty gritty of, well, what does that actually look like? If we're taking this away, what are we going to replace that with? was really important. And it was just one of those moments where I'm really glad I posted whatever it was that it was to do with Facebook and it wasn't critical of the school and has led that school to also transform their practice. And that's the school that I'm now working at as well. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Not to do with the kids so much there. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the chaos before with, with teaching kids in their first year of school. How do you maintain your sanity after teaching, you know, these, these young people in their first year? Yeah, there's an assumption there that I am sane, <laughs> which, you know, we're all teachers. Maybe we're a little bit insane at, at the same time. Yeah. Something that I've definitely noticed is exercise gives me a bit of space to really make sure that I'm uh, either thinking about other things or even just to process the day. At Tilden, I had a bit of a commute. And so that was really nice, about 45 minutes to unwind and by the time I got home, I'd completely sort of switched off, which yep. was nice. Uh, I enjoy reading as well and do that most nights as well. And having family time and making sure that I try and protect my weekends. That's a really important one. And also holidays, trying to limit how much school seeps into that family life. Yeah. Sometimes during the week, I definitely don't get that balance right. But trying to make sure that... I draw a line. I think there's, in teaching, there's always something extra you could be doing, whether it's creating a display, whether it's going back over some plans or writing more of a plan or whatever it is, there's always something extra you could be doing and you just have to draw a line somewhere. Yeah. Another thing that I've started, I started seeing a psych last year and that's just been an absolutely wonderful experience that I highly recommend because it just provides someone completely external that can talk through that mental space and yeah, has, has led to me changing quite a few things over the last six months. So 
that's been really good for my sanity and I think also the sanity of those around me. Yeah, amazing. Uh, thanks for sharing as well. You know, I think there's some really good tips there and it, it is, you know, it's a, it, it's a balancing act, isn't it? That a lot of the times like, when you talk about balance, people kind of think that you need to have like a 50-50 kind of split, but that's not really how it works. And, and I like how you mentioned that there are times where, you know, you are going to kind of be leaning more towards work then there's going to be other times when you're going to kind of flip it the other way around and and that's okay as well i think sometimes we can we aim for this like holy grail which is not really achievable and and then you do kind of then get on this spiral of well i'm not doing anything right but you know and and that could be kind of hard to play that that game as well so yeah interesting reflections here yeah and i went through a bit of a phase where the first thing to drop off would be the morning run yeah, you know, I'm too busy to run. Yeah, and then I realised actually no, that's that's essential to lock in there um, because it actually is so healthy, not just for the body but definitely for the mind. Yeah, and being able to be present and process and do those things. Yeah. It was also interesting, you know, the commutes drop down from a 45 minute to a five minute drive. Yeah, which means I don't even get time to listen to a full song sometimes. <laughs> So like one of the suggestions my psych made was just when I get home, actually changing the clothes that I'm in just to give that physical barrier as well as the mental barrier. And that's just like, I I wouldn't necessarily have thought of doing that myself. And it's just been, you know, the family now know that I'll come home. I'll say hi to them, but then I'll go to the bedroom, get changed and then I'm ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Cool. Yeah. It's it's funny, like, by the time this episode airs, the first one will be with Ray Boyd and and then, you know, with you and both of you have, have spoken about the importance of exercise and running, right? There's Ray. a bit of a caliber of difference in uh, his running and my running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but, you know, like he, he did mention how like he's he literally hasn't missed a day of running for five years, which is yeah pretty, pretty amazing and insane when you think about it. But, yeah, like I think we're at the start of the year we're going to have a lot of lot of teachers a lot of people who are setting new year's resolutions and i think it is important that we do uh also just mention the the importance of looking after yourself um, because it can like no matter where you are in your own kind of learning journey um it can get quite intense at times i was i was down this massive rabbit hole the other day where like i literally had like a hundred tabs open because i just kept kind of you know you you're on one article and then that has you looking at another one and all of a sudden I've got this 100 tabs open. I'm like, what am I going to do? <laughs> and so I'm slowly kind of closing, closing, closing. But, yeah, like it can be really tricky when you, when you get into that sort of area to, to find find yourself back where you need to be. But look, James. Yeah, look, being yeah, kind so. to yourself as well. I know there's uh, – I enjoy listening to podcasts when I run, including educational podcasts, but there's definitely days where I'm going, no. It's not an educational podcast today. I'm not listening to Knowledge for Teachers today. (laughs) That can wait till I'm actually in a headspace where I can. So being kind to yourself and making sure that you're looking after yourself and that's really your mental space as well. Yeah, because I know that if I'm getting too tired or cranky and then suddenly I'm only performing at 60% and I'm not actually giving the children what they need and I'm probably bringing other colleagues down with me, um, in that space so definitely looking after yourself which you know is easy to say as i'm on holidays yeah. a bit harder to do in the middle of assessment and reporting uh, yeah. yeah yeah you know look I've, I've worked in other industries and and without a doubt like 
teaching the intensity of teaching, you know, when you're in front of kids for four or five hours a day, it's unmatched. And, and so when when you're you're kind of in the thick of it, yeah, it can be really, really difficult to to kind of know where your headspace is at and what you need to do to, to kind of look after yourself. And so hopefully uh, your bit of advice and Ray's advice is able to support some teachers with, with kind of getting in front of what they need to be doing to look after themselves. So look, let's let's dig into teaching um, kids in their first year of school. Okay, so firstly, are you able to just give us a bit of an overview of like your weekly timetable? What's that kind of look like? Yeah, so obviously there's a very big difference from the first week of school to the last week of school with kids in their first year. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty dramatic. So I'll show you sort of more a typical timetable. Yep. And then I think first term, that's quite different. But generally we have two hours of literacy each day, so that gives us 10 hours and try and keep that together as a two-hour literacy block Uh I try and make sure that happens first thing in the morning. And then after recess, we come back in for an hour of maths. So sort of that first three hours of the day, that critical literacy maths learning. Then it works out we have four hours of specialists in Victoria. And so that's about an hour a day again. And then we have an hour in the week where we do school-wide positive behaviour support and respectful relationships, so that emotional learning stuff. Having said that, it's so important that that's then scattered through, especially the school-wide positive behaviour support. You know, it's not just that time in the week, but it's actually talked about each day so that we can really learn. So we might have something like we line up quietly and calmly. And so then that focus, every time we're lining up that week, that's a really big focus. And then the next week it might be we keep our workspaces clean and tidy, which I always feel a bit guilty knowing how messy my workspace gets. <laughs> but again, really touching on that and then coming back to them, not just in that week, but over time, really focusing on those. So it's, so that's half an hour of SWPBS and half an hour of respectful relationships, but then also touching on them throughout the week. We have buddies. So our foundation students have grade six buddies and we have about half an hour a week or a fortnight with them. And then last year we had an hour of story champs and that was part of how the classes were structured. There were two prep one classes that were combined. And so I'd take the most of the kids at the prep level for literacy and maths. But then while the other teacher was taking the grade one level students. But then for the specialist subjects, they'd take a mixture of preps and ones. And so one of the things we'd do when we had the preps and ones to, combined was a program called Story Champs, which is really, it's by the same people who do uh, the cubed assessment. And it's really looking at the pattern of narratives. And you do lots of retail, simple retails, simple stories that follow that pattern and students retell them. It's building a lot of oral language skills. In fact, the second session, I just remember being absolutely blown away by a student who had really significant communication issues. And he was suddenly telling this story in full sentences. And, you know, part of our probably my expectation was he would probably only just say single words at that point. 
But yep. here he was just saying the full sentences. So that was a really powerful session. And then that starts being a template for which students can write a narrative. So it sort of talks about the setting and the character, the problem and the feeling, the action that takes place to solve that problem, and then the end feeling once that problem solved. And there's a lot of lovely vocab stuff in there as well. So that leaves us with about three or four hours left in the week. And so then it's sort of science and humanities, the two big sort of other areas. And the way that we've done it is that they're linked to our literacy, our comprehension units, so that, say, if we're doing the five senses, the science stuff that we're doing is about our five senses at that time. Whereas if we're learning about NADOC week in in our literacy time, then we'll do some NADOC week activities in that extra time. And the other thing that we do a lot of, especially at the start of the year, is providing opportunity for that play-based experience as well. So I call it golden time. Yep. Uh, it, it just makes it sound nice and shiny. Yeah. Uh, but it's really giving kids time to do puzzles and play with each other. We'll get their play kitchen out and navigating those social interactions. So at the start of the year, kids aren't really, well, we still have two hours of literacy, but that looks quite different. And it's sort of a lot of really short, sharp bursts. So probably sort of 15 minute max just of one kind of activity before flowing into another and sort of thinking about I suppose, the cognitive demand of an activity, because if there's something that really requires kids to think, you then want to follow that up with something where they can uh, rest their minds for a little bit. And, And at the start of the year, most days will finish with that hour of golden time as they're learning each other, as they're learning how to interact, as they're learning all the routines of school and as they're really exhausted at the start of that school year. Uh, We also have Wednesdays off. We've got the first five Wednesdays where the students, I say we have Wednesdays off. The students have Wednesdays as a rest day, the prep students. That allows us to do some assessments and it also gives them that break that they really need so that they can come back for a fresh Thursday, Friday with the energy that they need. Is that a um, common thing in Victoria, the Wednesdays? In in Victoria, it's pretty common for um, February to be uh, Wednesdays. Perhaps students don't come. I think there's some schools where it's uh, they might bank all those days right at the start of the year, but uh, it's a fairly typical experience. Yeah, and just with the timing of this year, we happen to get an extra one because the first Wednesday is actually in January. Look, I like how you, you mentioned that difference between the start of the year and then later on in the year and, and emphasizing the need for that golden time as well. I think like sometimes critics of, of the science of learning, they will come back and say, well, what about their, their children's development in the early years? And they need that time to play. And you've, you've literally just said like, no, they do get it. It's just about the purpose of like what you're doing now. The purpose now is to have your play and your socializing and all that. And then your purpose for your literacy block is to teach them those literacy skills. Yeah, and we can certainly teach those literacy skills in a very playful manner as well. Yeah. So it's it's a different style of play, but it's still play. It's a lot of nursery rhymes. It's a lot of songs. It's a lot of games where the focus is actually on 
learning a new skill or practicing that new skill, but it's certainly done in a form of play. For the following topics, can we look at how you kind of progress throughout a year on them and then get into the granular level of detail as to like what a lesson might look like and some activities that you might do for them? So first one I want to look at is um, phonemic awareness. Yeah, starting with the controversial one. I like that. Yep. So when I was at Tilden, my inroad to making some change there was not just COVID. Or that provided a nice chance for us all to reflect on some of the things. But I realized that nobody was would say that they were really teaching phonemic awareness. And so it was an easy way to say, hey, we're not doing this let's introduce it and so we actually introduced Hegarty's phonemic awareness which is which was I haven't gone through their new one but it was very much an oral only phonemic awareness program so the idea that we can phonemic awareness for those people who don't know is uh, the ability to hear identify and manipulate sounds in spoken English or spoken sound so it was the idea that you could do that in the dark so you didn't need letters to be able to do those exercises. I do not regret doing that because it then led the way to so many other changes and, and it's and a it's bit scripted. of a scripted program. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, um, I was just going to say scripted. Yeah, much simpler script than a lot of direct instruction programs, but it was still scripted. It was provided, which also means it's fully planned. And then, it, which then lends this really, once we start codifying things like through a script it then means that we can go and observe others and have a really detailed conversation about the nitty-gritty of well what that actually looked like yeah and how we can make small tweaks to our practice Um, at the start of the year there's a lot of they start with sort of like compound words and then we over time, that becomes phony, goes down to syllables and then phonemes. I tend to speed that up a bit so that we get into the phonemes. And the other thing I, that I make sure I do is once phonemes have been, graphene phoneme correspondences, so the letter sound combinations have been taught, then actually starting to introduce that into that phonemic awareness program. So in the book, it would say something like, say top, top, add, what word? Stop. And I'd do that, say top, that'd say top. And then I'd show a card with the letter S on it, add. And then, so, so it's just building, it's just integrating that phonics stuff into that phonemic awareness aspect. There's also a conversation around how much we need to teach some of the more advanced phonemic awareness skills. So substituting sounds and so on. So I'm conscious of how long we spend doing the phonemic awareness each day, um, especially if it's not incorporating the phonics aspect. Yeah, but it's also sense. been pretty useful to then be able to use some of that as review of phonics skills that they've previously learned. Yeah, and so over a year, are you kind of saying that initially you'll be you'll be doing more phonemic awareness and then as you, you start to develop their phonics, then you do a bit less phonemic awareness and more phonics. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of like the phonemic awareness almost becomes more a phonics session yeah. 
as students are able to do more. We still do keep that phonemic awareness going through, but yeah, it's, it's certainly at the start of the year, there's a lot of the oral stuff because the students haven't learnt many letter sound correspondences yet. But then as they've been introduced, it becomes a lot more writing. And that will be one of the things that we use quite a bit is mini whiteboards. We use them all the time. When when I use them, students are sitting at their desks. So it's actually practising writing in a decent posture. And like... It also breaks up the session as well. So we might do two activities on the floor where they're responding orally. They might be doing some rhymes. They might tell me the uh, middle sound of some words. And then they might go, we might go to the desks and there they might be writing the first sound of a word or they might be segmenting a word or blending a word that they then write. And then they can come back to the floor. And I find that that provides like this nice opportunity of a quick brain break. Yeah that sort of 20 seconds where they're standing up, going to the, get their whiteboards out, just gives them that chance just to process and move into that next activity. Yeah, and, and I assume that you've probably been quite purposeful with the way that you've taught that routine because a lot of teachers, they would look at that kind of as a disruption, you know, moving an unneeded disruption, whereas what you're actually um, saying there is that, you're being purposeful in the fact that, no, you want them to move so that they're getting a brain break and then you're going from floor to your seats and then back again, but they're still being quite quick and efficient in as they do that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's one of those routines that t- takes a bit of time at the start of the year to get right, but then it pays off all year um, because if it's 20 seconds instead of a minute or two minutes each time and we'd be going backwards and forwards in literacy and maths I, it would probably be 20 times that they're going backwards and forwards in a session. That did change a little bit last year. I did have a student who had cerebral palsy. Sure. And so just his, you know, making sure that I was supporting him meant that we weren't getting up and down quite as frequently as we have done previous years. And that's, that, that's being inclusive of everyone. Yeah. But yeah, certainly in previous years, it's been a lot of backwards and forwards. And so making sure that we teach that so that students know the expectation, know how to do it quickly, and then making sure that we keep um, that expectation really solid and really high and we don't let it gradually slip so that then it becomes, actually, they are taking a minute to get their whiteboards out. Yeah, it, it it, it can be tiring as a teacher just maintaining some of those expectations, but it's definitely worth it. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's blend this segment into the next part and look at phonics. Yeah. So our school follows the Little Learners Love Literacy Scope and Sequence. I don't think it's the perfect scope and sequence, but I'm also not going to spend a lot of time trying to work out the exact perfect one when someone's given me one and we can use it very easily across the whole school. And I think that's the most important thing is having one that is consistent for your whole school. Obviously, that scope and sequence impacts, you know, that uh, foundation to grade two more. But we certainly have kids at our school in the upper years who are still working their way through learning that bits of that scope and sequence. So we'll introduce the first sound. It's not a sound, it's a spelling. There are some people out there that get very particular about those things. So we start off with M representing M, S representing S, F representing F. 
and A representing A, and then there's four others in that first stage, first level. We introduce one a day. It changes a bit, and actually this year we're going to bring forward when we start introducing them to actually be their second day of school. We'll introduce their first lesser sound combination. Probably over the first couple of weeks, it might be one every two days. Gives us a chance to introduce and then really practice it on that second day. And then when we introduce S representing S, then there's two that we can practice. As soon as we can start blending those to make words, we so that's one of the things that I struggle a little bit with the little learners is when you have an M, S, A and F, there's not a heap of words there just yet. So, and some, yeah. So the more that we can introduce without leaving any students behind, I think that's the um, pace at which it's uh, right. You go as fast as you can, but as slow as you must. And then as soon as we can blend them into words, we start using those words. When we introduce a letter, we're um, saying it, but we're also writing it. And from then, like that's where handwriting starts, really focusing exactly how kids are forming those letters. One of the slight annoyances is that a lot of kids come to school writing their names, which might sound wonderful, Mm. uh, but often they're writing their names in capital letters or they look like the letters, but they're starting them in really bizarre places. So it might be an A is a circle and then they put a flick on it somewhere and they might start the circle at the bottom. I find that the letters in a child's name are often the ones that they struggle to form correctly later in the year. Mm. Like they're the ones that because they've got that muscle memory and they've been practicing it before they've got to school, they become really tricky ones to then have to try and fix up and recorrect. So if we can get it right the first time letters are introduced, then then the handwriting by the end of the year is so much better. And then I also think that by the time you get to about the end of grade one, your handwriting is not completely locked in. You're certainly going to improve it, but certainly the way you form some of those letters are going to, you've had lots of practice of them. And if you've been practicing them incorrectly, well done, you've learned them incorrectly and you've learned them really well by that stage. Mm. So it's much harder to fix up at that point. So taking that time, when they're very first introduced to really make sure that we're starting in the right spot, the sizing's roughly appropriate, um, is really important. And in fact, I'd say making sure we start and finish in the right spot is more important than just the sizes at that point in time. Yeah. And so time frame, what are we looking at here? Time frame, yeah, how, how like, long that's yeah, going to take. Yeah. Well, often it starts with a bit of a review of the ones that we've learned. So that depends on how many we've learned. At the start of the year, they haven't learned any yet, so the review doesn't take long at all. By the end of the year, it's probably three minutes going through the different sounds that we've learned and pulling out ones that they need to practice on. By the end of the year, we're not going to be practicing the letter M spells M every day because... They've got that, they've mastered that really well. We'll review that and it will certainly come up in the words that we're writing. But 
So that's probably about three minutes there. Introducing that new graphene is probably another five minutes with some handwriting, about five minutes of blending to read words. We might introduce a tricky word as well. We definitely practice them once students have learned them. And the first tricky word, and that's just, they're only tricky because students haven't learnt, they might not have learnt that a sound can represent, a letter can represent that certain sound yet. So, and is a good example. And we tend to do that. I, I tweak the scope and sequence, so I actually introduce the letter N before I do the word and, but plenty of people don't. So it's only tricky because they haven't learned that N yet. Yeah. Then there's other words like said, where it's tricky because the AI makes an et sound. So we'll look at the parts that the kids know that makes sense, and then we'll look at that tricky part and we'll learn that word. And by learning that word, we'll write that word multiple times and say that word and say the letters in that word, and then we'll review those as well. So that's probably another five minutes. And then we've got spelling, which probably is five to 10 minutes in there. And that's spelling words that we expect them to know. So um, it's, it's really phonic heavy words phonically regular ones. We don't look so much at morphology, certainly in the first semester. In the second semester, we start doing a bit of that with past tense and ing words. And sometimes with tricky words like the word to, we might look at a bit of the etymology where the TW used to be pronounced. And so a word like twin, which is phonetically regular, makes sense but that carries over to the word two as well as in the number. And then we have fluency pairs where we're reading phonetically regular text or decodable readers, usually in partners. And that gives them that practice of applying that phonics skills with uh, that whole text level. And that might start off at the start of the year as being individual sounds that they're just practicing with their partner and then sounds and a few words. And then those words become simple sentences that they might read to their partner. And then that becomes eventually book. But we've got to step them through those processes. Yeah. And how, um, do, you, how do you set up your, your fluency pairs? Yeah, there's a few different ways because we tend to do it at table. So for me, it's whoever their desk partner is. So I, I have... Something a bit different to many foundation classrooms. My class has uh, desks in rows. And part of that is just such the simple thing of, I want everybody to be able to see the board. And the moment you start grouping tables, you start getting people who've got to turn around to see what's behind them and what's on the board. And I hate doing that in a PD. When I'm attending a PD, I hate having my back and having to twist my neck. So if we're expecting students to be able to look at a board and, you know, use that knowledge and information, uh, it becomes really tricky to do when they're in groups. So having them with a desk partner, and we do lots of turn and talk and things with desk partners, and so that's normally who their um, reading partner is. And I'll change those about uh, twice a term so that they're working with different students. And sometimes that will be because of 
students' abilities and people I think work will work. Actually, it's always people I think will work well together. Yeah. Another way that you could do it that I've seen is uh, you sort of print off a list of, you know, maybe your Dibbles results or something and then cut that in half and then pair the top student, for want of a better term, with the top student at the second half of that list so that you don't have your very top student working with your very weakest reader because that difference can be just too great. And it also gives a whole bunch of different students that ability to show leadership. But it's also always interesting who surprises you and the kids who at that stage make huge leaps and bounds at different times. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee each month, I would really appreciate it if you supported the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. While the podcast will always be available for free, your support will ensure the sustainability of it. By doing so, you will gain access to transcripts, my key takeaways from each episode and more. So, if you can head to patreon.com slash knowledge for teachers podcast, that would be greatly appreciated. If you are a larger organization interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact me at brendan at learnwithlee.net. Now, let's get back to the episode. And so then, I guess, distinguishing between reading to develop their decoding ability and reading for knowledge building, how do you fit that in? Yeah, so... We, we tend to have a fruit break at 10 o'clock and that's where I pull out a read aloud to have and that's where more the comprehension side of things, the language comprehension in particular side of things really kicks in. We use core knowledge and as a basis, but then we also add to that depending on what we need to. So they, the first unit next year will be around nursery rhymes and fables and then we'll be talking about five senses, five senses. As part of that, they taught, one of the things I really like about Cornology is that they bring in some biographies. So they talk about um, Ray Charles and my mind's gone blank of the other person that they talk about. But as a really logical link there is then we've introduced a lesson about Gurumul. Gurumul Yunapingu, who is a blind Australian, Aboriginal Australian musician. And so that's just such a natural link. And there's so many similarities and differences that you can compare and contrast with Ray Charles and Dr. Yunapingu, as well as Helen Keller's the other one um, in that biography area. So it's it's just this really authentic way to Australianise that bit of the curriculum. Next year, we're also going to do a bit around families to finish off term one and sort of create family trees um, to get that sort of sense of individual children. The the core knowledge curriculum is pretty amazing in some of the expectations of what students can learn. So like doing the plants unit, kids learn about deciduous and evergreen trees. Mm. Again, a nice natural link in Australia would be is making sure we talk about eucalyptus as evergreen trees, not just the pine trees that the Northern Hemisphere enjoy. And then seeing the, you know, older students' reactions when you've got the younger students in the school going around saying, oh, this is a deciduous tree. Yeah. And at the end of... One of my years teaching, we had a land care come in and we were planting and I just asked my preps to tell, so this is about six months after we'd done the plants unit, oh, tell your buddies what 
what our planet needs in order to survive. And so the the five, six-year-olds are going, they need nutrients and they need air and they need sunlight and they need water. And you just saw these 12-year-old kids go, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's really quite remarkable what what five and six-year-old students are able to learn. They're these wonderful sponges full of knowledge that then the more you can then connect that knowledge with other bits of information. So later in the year, we do looking at caring for our earth, I think it's called, but it's that sustainability edge. And so knowing what plants need in order to survive is an important pre to thinking about, well, what do we need to do as humans to ensure that plants are able to survive? There's a few read to learn, I think. Have you had Nathaniel Swain on your podcast yeah. so a few of those lessons we use as well our units we use as well i think we adapted a nadoc week one through there and again contextualized it so that it reflected the jarjarung people who are traditional custodians of the lands that i'm on today with that comprehension one of the big pushes that was school-wide in the last term in particular was around vocabulary and explicitly teaching vocabulary. So the expectation was that one word would be pulled out from what you read to your students or what yep. your students are reading that day. And we'd put that on a slide explaining the meaning of that word in kids-friendly language and also using the context of the story, but also some other contexts for that word. And then we'd review those. So I wrote a piece when it was about week four or five. And by that stage, I'd created 700 slides. <laughs> I'm not going to go back and count exactly how many slides I was creating to do that. And as part of a I do, we do, you do gradual release model, I did it. It's now probably time that we do it together and then teachers will take ownership of that going forward. But that was important to get some consistency yeah. in how we were doing that and then also being able to review the words that we've taught and I think that was the most important thing because then we started getting writing pieces where kids were using the words that they were learning which was just up leveling their writing that had that practice um I wasn't expecting my my students to write the words but certainly in five six they'd do a lot of whiteboard work where they had to use the word in a sentence they had to write which word matched the definition that popped up or which word fitted into a sentence that was coming up. So a lot of practice using those words, whereas with foundation students, it was a lot more oral. Having said that, by the last couple of weeks of term, we were starting to do a bit of writing in that session as well. Yeah. You mentioned a few times around reviewing. Do you have like a, a set time where you know whether it's at the start of your literacy block or is that is it kind of just coming in whenever it's kind of needed yeah so maths we have a i have a set time at the start of my maths block where we're reviewing maths material i find with literacy it sort of like comes in at different times so the vocabulary review will happen sort of after the comprehension read aloud um, whereas the reviewing of the grapheme phoneme correspondences happens at the start of that phonics session. The tricky words happens as we're reviewing a, a little bit later. So it's not so much 
here it is, here's the 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes at the start. It's just sort of little bits throughout, but really important bits that sort of my lessons almost pin on making sure that there's those th- elements there. Yeah. And I, I think the importance of review can't be overstated. It's, it, it's something that absolutely changed my practice when I got really, well, direct instruction programs have that review element built into them. Mm. And so then when I was, came, back to, came back to Victoria, was working at Tilden, I wanted to make sure that I was giving students that chance of review. And I actually hadn't heard of retrieval practice at that point, but Mm. I was like, we really need to make sure that we don't forget what we've learned. And then I've since read quite a lot of around retrieval practice and making exactly why it's so important and different ways to do that. I, I like to try and be really consistent in those ways. Hence, like the vocabulary slides were very similar. The reviewing was a lot of closed sentences. So there'd be a word missing and kids would think about which word they've learned fits that. And that's just a time factor where kids don't have to learn a new format each day. Yeah. And their mind can just focus on, well, here's the word that fits. Here's the word that fits. Yeah. Awesome. You spoke a bit about handwriting before when we were looking at phonics. Did you want to add anything to that or did you pretty much cover it then? A question I get is where do you introduce dotted thirds? And that's that's an interesting one that would be nice if there's a research paper that just told us exactly when we should introduce <laughs> dotted thirds. Should it be the moment kids learn the letter? Hmm. I wonder if there's a bit too much going on at that point. So the last couple of years I've introduced the dotted thirds around term four. I think next year we're going to bring that forward a bit more. So we we start off with just whiteboards and then tracing as well, tracing the letters in different ways. And then, and at the start of the year as well, part of learning is they make the letter using Play-Doh. So they make the letter, they've got that sort of hands-on experience and then they trace the letter that they've made with the Play-Doh, making sure that they're starting at the top of the letter, which is where most letters start and really getting that formation. So trying to be novel in the different ways that we do things as well. But yeah, then introducing lines, like a single solid line to sit their letters. And my wondering now is, does that still need to be separate or can we have dotted thirds at that point? And I think it'll be interesting how students respond, whether it is too much with three lots of dots or whether actually they pick it up reasonably quickly because students are always surprising me at how amazing they are. Another thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about was the font that we use. So we don't use Victorian cursive in the first year of school because it's got a really funny B that actually looks kind of similar to an L when you get all the flicks and ticks and things happening. And, you know, R's can start looking like V's or they can start looking like M's or N's or different letters. So we actually use a New South Wales Foundation font, which again probably isn't quite perfect because the L and the capital I and the number one look very similar but it's better than the different B's and Z's and P's. So that's, I did spend a bit of time thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I think that's really useful advice there, and and I, I like how you, you you spoke about you know the the dotted lines and yeah, because it is an interesting one, and and I guess in, until you've actually trialed it out a few times and seen what's what's actually working, it's hard to know. But for me, like it's encouraging to know that we've got people like you who are really thinking that deeply about this stuff because for some people it doesn't matter but it could actually help a lot of kids out if, if they are able to just master it a bit quicker or a bit more effectively yeah and and just getting that handwriting right it's one of those things where like i wish as a kid i was taught really well because i look as a teacher you look at some teachers and you're like wow your writing is so good and then and then i've got to like concentrate so hard to get it anywhere near that level yeah, it's, it's one of those skills where if you get it right in the first place, it's a lot easier than trying to correct those misconceptions where, like you spoke about before, we've spent so much time writing a certain way. If it's been the wrong way, then it's really hard to correct. Well, one of my big uh, moments of pride is whenever a kid goes, Mr. Dobson, you have such neat handwriting because <laughs> my handwriting is pretty atrocious and I wish I had someone. In fact, I was looking through some of my old book and I didn't have dotted thirds at all. I'm yeah. just going, they would have been so beneficial because I would have got the sizing so much better back then. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's let's look at writing now. So, you know, uh, moving on from handwriting and looking at how do you introduce writing to, to uh, kids in the first year of school? Yeah, so a lot of short bursts of writing. So I don't often... And particularly in the first term, it's very rare for me to go, here's a picture, go and write about it. And that's, well, it's kind of an equity issue. A whole bunch of kids don't have the skills yet to do that. So I'm setting them up for a task that they can't succeed at. And I don't have the instruction time to waste doing that. So there's a lot of dictated sentences. I suppose it starts with just writing the letter that matches a sound that I'm saying and I practice writing that. And then once they've learned some words, we can start saying some really simple sentences. So it might be uh, Sam sat is often one of the first ones that we use. And then those sentences uh, start getting longer. They start using words that might have more than two or three sounds. They start using different letters as they learn them to the point where they, you can start being quite complex with some of those sentences. But always keeping in mind how complex this, that sentence is and how, how well students are able going to, to meet that. A nice way to differentiate because there are some students who are able to write more is once everyone's written that first initial sentence is just say, you can then write the next write a sentence of your own. Yeah. And again, really trying to limit it one sentence. I want kids to learn what a sentence is, how to say a sentence. So we also do a lot of, I might show a picture on the board. Everyone's suggesting um, sentences. They might turn to their partner to talk about it. So they've all got something in their mind. Then someone says a sentence and really making sure that it is a sentence and really trying to limit run-on sentences so sort of the moment that they say and and then start another sentence, I'm stopping them and making it lots of short sentences. And yes, I know you can have a sentence that has an and and goes on, but I want 
students to master that basic sentence before we get that complexity of conjunctions later on. And then, yeah, so then they might write their own sentence after that. Another way is often there'll be a picture for them to draw about the sentence that they've written or a picture to add on to. So an ant is in a tin. There might be a tin there and maybe they have to draw the ant in the tin or the an ant is on the tin. So not only are you getting some of that writing, yeah. you're also getting the comprehension of what kids are actually writing. You know, do they know that preposition on is actually going to sit on the tin rather than in the tin? So it's just like trying to nicely blend a whole bunch of these different aspects and not just have writing as a completely standalone, unrelated aspect to everything else. Come the second semester, you do want to give kids that little bit of chance to not just have be told what to write, but have a go at writing. But you want it to be short and sharp. So, and th this really became evident to me when I was teaching one twos. I'd have I'd set kids half an hour to write, and there'd be some kids who would write four or five pages, and there would be other kids who would struggle to write a word. And then, part of the issue with the four and five pages that I was getting was within the first sentence there might be six errors. And you're going, well, I haven't read past the first sentence yet. What feedback am I giving to this child who's written this huge amount, but I don't want to ignore the fact that they've written that huge amount either. And what can I give this child? What feedback can I give this child who's only written one word? So then I started shortening that time to be, all right, write your opening sentence. And it might be five minutes. And in that five minutes, go work with that child who's only going to, he might struggle to write one word. But what I found was when the task was much more smaller, that child would actually write a sentence. Yeah, It was a manageable task for them. And so they could meet that expectation. And then those other children who would want to write five pages had the time to really think and write a quality sentence and not make uh, errors that they would have made had it, they just been rushing to try and get five pages done. So really um, almost making them like short sprints yeah. um, so that we might do that. We, we might still spend 30 minutes writing, but it's just in short little chunks and it became so much more manageable and achievable. So um, definitely a space for, um, you know, tell me something you did on the weekend and giving them that, that chance to write about their weekend and giving them that freedom to put the skills that they've learned into their own practice. Yeah. Yeah. And so at the same time, are you kind of, you know, teaching them different things about grammar and, and syntax and how does that all fit in? Yeah, absolutely. So like there's some great resources now. Oka have combined with, I think it's the Grammar Project, um, where we're really looking at those basic grammar skills. And a lot of that is oral. So getting kids to say a full sentence before they go off and write it, or even well before they have the skills to be able to write it so that they've got this sense of this is a sentence. This is how it looks. Looking at things like, well, your sentence needs to start with a capital letter. You need to have spaces between the words. And one thing I learned was 
you can't tell kids to put a finger space because they'll put their finger and that's fine for me as a right-handed, but left-handed people really struggle because their finger's sort of in the wrong, they've got to use the opposite hand. So pop sticks, and you can actually get thicker pop sticks that we use as space bars. I call them space bars because it links to a computer having a space bar. (laughs) And I've seen people put like space helmets on them as well. But just having that to put down in between their words is a really good way of making sure that there are spaces. And going back to like a dictated sentence, you as a teacher, you can check that everyone's got that space bar down on their page as you're in with a very quick glance around the room. So it's a really good cue there. I also teach them that a sentence needs to end with a dot and gradually over the year introduce the full stop, exclamation mark and question mark, all of which have dots. So that's a nice one to use there. Yeah. So, and then we start expanding on sentences as well. So we'll start using because, because sort of as our first one and we will use but tend not to use so much of as a sentence expander in the first year. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Let's look at mathematics now. Yes, let's. So I, I was saying that the review is probably such a p- pivotal point in this and I spend a good 20 minutes doing a review. I used to create my own reviews, which were beautiful and amazing and took me so much time to create. (laughs) I have created uh, free reviews for people to use as is or to adapt. And I cannot say how much time that has saved me last year. I, I spend a good chunk of maths reviewing. And it's such... It's at least 20 minutes. Sometimes I look at the watch and go, oh, that went to half an hour. And you might go, well, what about the other things? But to me, it's so important that our students don't forget what has been previously taught. And that's actually going to give them a better outcome than if I was to do a quick five-minute review where we might only cover two or three topics and then spend the rest of the time in other ways. So really making sure that we're constantly reviewing and giving kids the practice that they need at those things. I say like 20 to 30 minutes, that's not in the first couple of weeks of school or even in the first term. First term tends to be a bit different where we're much shorter with um, timings. And I might actually break the review up into several bits throughout that hour session. So that, um, yeah to keep that engagement. One of the things you mentioned, Russ Fox mentioning the ratio or rate of responses is the pace at that review. And I think he recorded that students had, I think it was about six opportunities to respond. Or actually maybe he said 10 opportunities to respond every minute. Yeah. So every sort of six to 10 seconds, they are responding either orally, they're writing something down. It, it's this sort of constant back and forth. And this is the other chance where We'll do a lot on the floor where there'll be choral responses, maybe a turn and talk, maybe they'll be show pointing when there's two options on a board. But then they'll also go to their mini whiteboards and get up and go and write some equations, write some numbers. And again, that's such a brilliant way for me to be able to check for understanding because that's going to tell me as a teacher what things do we need to go back over because I do not have most students or all students being successful here. 
Start of the year, a lot of the review is around supersizing numbers. So automatically recognizing, and this comes just after you teach them how to count those numbers. Interesting thing about supersizing, we can only do it up to three. I'm going to be bold and say it's only up to three. And once you go beyond three, it's you're actually recognizing, you might be recognizing that there's three there and two there, and that's five. Now, if you can do that pretty quickly, that appears as though you're supersizing the number five, but you're actually supersizing a three and a two. So you've got that model to put together. And we, we can get models pretty comfortably up to 10. And then if we're using things like a tens frame, we can use, you can go to 20, so on. Another really important aspect is around number sense. And so getting this sense of what a three is, the, like the threeness of three, that it's two and one or one and two. Yeah, so th that's really important to build with students. And that's that's why reviewing those things is so important. Some people use number talks and I've used number talks before. My slight tweaks to those. So that's where you might show, a, you know, there might be 15 dots and you might say, how many dots are there? How do you know? Or write an equation to match these dots and see what students are coming up with. A couple of tweaks for me using those is making sure that they're really time bound and also highlighting strategies that students are using that you want highlighted. So sometimes I've seen people say, don't tell students that a strategy is better or not. But if someone's counting those dots one by one <laughs> and someone else can see that there's three groups of five, I know which I would rather my students use. Yeah. Yeah, in, in reviewing, there's also opportunities for maths throughout the day. So I play a bit of a game called the student-teacher game when I'm doing phonemic awareness, and I give students points, and then sometimes I take a point on my side if students aren't meeting the uh, desired behaviours. We count those by fives because they're tally marks. We count those by fives. So from sort of the second week of the year, Every day, students are counting by fives so that when we get to skip counting in maths, mm. that becomes a very, very easy task for students to learn uh, because they've got that counting by fives and have had so much practice. After the review, there's a sort of teaching phase, a learn phase, and that's explicitly teaching and trying to introduce a new concept each day, just one new thing. A good example of this, I think, was my first year teaching foundation, I went, all right, end of term one, I've got about 10 weeks. I reckon we'll get a good grasp of the numbers to 10 over those weeks. And so I sort of, I think the first week was numbers one to three, and then we kind of reviewed them and practiced them and then numbers to five. And in that also doing lots of like adding, like recognizing that four and one make five and two mm -hmm. and three make five. A great resource here is number blocks which is a TV show which does an amazing job of showing that five can be broken up into two and three and so on. So by the end of the term, we got all kids counting to 10 and not just counting, but being able to recognize those numbers and use those numbers in different ways. And at the end of the year, the curriculum says something about knowing numbers up to 20 and beyond. So I went, well, we got up to 10 at the end of the first term. Let's get up to 20 by the end of the second term. We got up to 20 by the end of the second week. Yeah. 
kids just picked it up so quickly because they had that sort of like really solid grasp of what the numbers to 10 were Mm. that it just made so much sense to them. And then probably the last third of a session, so 20 minutes reviewing, 20 minutes doing that explicit teaching, following an I do, we do, you do model. And then I try and give them that chance to apply the knowledge. And it might be the knowledge that they've just learned or it might be previous knowledge. Maybe it's a game, maybe it's a worksheet, maybe it's a problem-solving task. It can look quite different from day to day what that is, but just trying to give them that chance to apply what they know in different ways. And that's a rough maths hour. Yeah. Yeah, so that's five days a week, one-hour session. And are you you kind of focusing on like a like when it comes to your scope and sequence are you focusing on like a unit at a time or are you doing like number and then different strands and in the same week how's that all kind of fitting in i certainly prioritize the number strand number and algebra strand last year i used the uh, shaping minds curriculum have a really nice scope and sequence i'm really excited going into next year i've got a book called direct instruction mathematics by stein and her colleagues And they've got some really nice sequences for lots of different areas. Yeah. And it is a bit of that responsive element because you don't want to be locked into a scope and sequence and your kids have not mastered a topic and you're moving on and leaving that behind. So really trying to give them the opportunity to master things and learn the next things. And again, the review also shows you whether or not they did actually learn that topic from three weeks ago or whether you need to go back to that. I find, especially in the foundation curriculum, a lot of the measurement and geometry aspects, kids pick up very quickly, especially if they have a good grasp of number and algebra. Awesome. So it's kind of building on what you're talking about there when you, you mentioned assessment. How does intervention kind of fit in then? Yeah. Early intervention is really golden. And I think the first thing is making sure that what's happening in the classroom is as good as it can be. Yeah. And, you know, it's really pleasing when I have allied health professionals come in and acknowledge that they're getting a really good reading program. And so what some students need is just more chat, more repetition. It's not as though they need something completely different. They just need more dosage, some people refer to it as, but they just need more opportunities yeah. to practice those things. Something I've had success with is I've been privileged to work with a phenomenal education support staff. And so setting them up to work with students one-on-one and about 10 minutes a day. So, so if we're looking at our literacy block, they can uh, get through maybe 10 students if needed in that time. Uh, Normally our list is probably about five or six students and that's just giving them extra practice of what they, maybe they're not quite blending sounds to make words. Maybe there's a couple of sounds that they haven't quite learnt. And that's been really, really, really effective just having that. Now, there could be an argument that that educational support should be in the classroom doing other things. And they certainly are at other points in the day, but just really to get that targeted, focused, extra support 
has been really important and has has had huge impact. And I think the most important point is often they will work, they'll only work with a kid for a term and then they've been given the skills that they need to then not need that extra repetition. Mm. And so then the EAS can work with someone else. So that's probably been the biggest one. On that sort of like there's that differentiation aspect as well. And I used to have lots of small groups before I was teaching foundation. I'd have, you know, three, maybe four small groups because I thought I was a great teacher and so could manage four four small groups. But what I realized was I was only spending 15 minutes in an hour with each of those groups, which isn't very equitable. It means that most of the time, those students didn't have immediate feedback. Most of the time, they could have been practicing for 45 minutes something incorrectly, which is a long time to go. So I try and do a lot of whole class teaching. And so I'm not creating different curriculums for everyone in the class but thinking about, well, what aspect of this task can be tweaked, can be modified? So there might be some students who I'm actually only expecting to write the first sound of a word while everyone else is writing the whole word. There might be other students who can go off and write a sentence by themselves. So just thinking, what's the task and how to either step it up or step it down slightly so that everyone can succeed at a very similar task rather than trying to come up with four different tasks or three different tasks. I think something else I'm mindful of as well is, you know, when students finish work quickly, that it doesn't feel like they're just getting more work. I remember not enjoying that at school and so just (laughs) slowing down my pace. So like at the start of the year, I found a whole bunch of kids love color by numbers. And so we'll have at the end of maths, if you finished the task, you can go on with a color by number. And that's also great because a couple of years ago, I had a kid who was brilliant at maths, his fine motor skills were not on par to his math skills. And so that gave him the chance to practice his fine motor, which is what he needed to focus on. And that throughout the year, that will morph into color by addition and subtraction. It might... I might have taught them how to play a game. A game I love is uh, called Friends of Ten Snap that I think I semi-made up, but it's not super revolutionary where <laughs> once we've learned the Friends of Ten, so four and six make ten, three and seven make ten, we'll get a um, set of play- playing cards and pretty much play Snap, but instead of it being pairs, it's the three and the seven. When they flip over, you snap them. The tens are freebie because there's no zero card. So anytime a tens turn flipped over, you can snap. And again, yeah. that's like this really nice means everyone can access the game. Yeah. Because you might have kids who are just waiting for a 10 to flip over and they'll snap as quickly as possible. I yeah. played it with my own daughter when she finished prep. And at the start of the summer holidays, she I, I sort of counted in my head three seconds before I'd snap yeah. so that she had a bit of a chance. By the end of the holidays, I was not counting down. It was... Uh, <laughs> it was on. Yeah, it was all on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I should also mention my son is starting prep this year, so that's exciting, and he happens to be in my class. Oh, wow. So something else to look forward to. Yeah, that's cool. Great opportunity. You've been a bit of a, an early adopter when it comes to you know the science of learning, science of breeding, and moved across a couple of different schools. So 
How have you effectively supported other teachers' professional development in changing their practice? I think acknowledging that change is hard is really important. I, as my fifth year teaching when I was starting in sort of a semi-leadership role, and I certainly made mistakes then that I wouldn't make now, but that's how we learn. And I was advising people, I was advising more experienced colleagues how to change their practice, which is a challenging points to come from. So recognizing that change is hard, especially if it's change that you've been doing for a long time, changing a practice that you've been doing for a long time. Having empathy with that. I also try and make sure that if I'm taking something away from you, for example, if I'm taking away prompts of looking at a picture to read a word, another three queuing thing, I'm trying to give you something that you can replace that with. Trying to think about how much support and we're getting better at it with students, you know, that gradual release of responsibility. I do it, we do it, you do it. I think that can very easily be glossed over in professional developments and it can just suddenly shift to you do this now And people are going, but what are we doing? How are we doing it? What does it look like? So making sure that we're doing that to get, that that we're not skipping over those steps. We're starting to introduce spelling mastery at Campbell's Creek Primary School, including Guildford Campus next year, this year. One of the important things there is making sure, which is a direct instruction program, I should say, is making sure that teachers have the opportunity to go through those phases of seeing what it looks like and then doing it with lots of support and then doing it independently. And I think one of the best ways to do that is through coaching and mentoring. Uh, Obviously, we can practice outside the classroom, and I think that's something that is also often glossed over. We tend to think that we can just practice when we're in the moment with all the different complex elements going on in the classroom. I think it's important that when we're doing something new, we do actually take some time to practice that before we're with our children. And that's part of making sure our instructional time is as rich as it can be. But then in that moment, having someone um, being able to observe and give you feedback either right there and then or afterwards, um, I still get nervous when someone comes in and observes me, but I didn't realize how beneficial it was until I had a lesson that just went very pear-shaped and students were absolutely struggling. I think the sentence we were trying to, I was trying to get them to repeat was a 12 word sentence. And then a more experienced person stepped in and was able to tweak it a bit, but the kids still really struggled with it. And it, that was a really, that was, I think, the first observation where I was like, oh, I actually don't want everything to be perfect when I'm being observed because I actually, it's those bits of imperfection that can help me improve my practice. So that was revealing. Another tip that one of my old principals, Joe, mentioned to me was rather than it making it sort of like just a two-way conversation, introducing a third um 
person. And that might be through a video. It might be through an article. It might be through like even an observation so that you can look together to see what it is. And so then it's not like I'm telling you to do this. Mm. It's that external thing that can that we can work together to work on this. Yeah, so just a few things there. Lots of little bits of PD often as well, trying to get that um, regular rather than here's a once-off PD, go do it, and we might check in in three years' time. That doesn't tend to be too effective. No, yeah, you know, lots of of great advice there, and I think a a lot of things that you're kind of talking about there when it comes to improving teacher practice it's, it's basically replicating effective teaching practice for our students and doing that for our teachers as well. You know, you spoke about the gradual release of responsibility, giving them those examples and spacing out our, our learning over time. And like that, that one that you mentioned there with the, I think in teaching walkthroughs, Tom Sherrington and Oliver Caviglioli, they talk about the third point of communication, which is what you're, you're mentioning there, where, yeah, whether it's, an, it's just another resource that you're both looking at. And so it's not just... That, that leader who is um, delivering the message, but you're now looking at a separate bit of information together and then you know, making your, your observations off that. James, look, it's been a wonderful conversation and, and I'm really thankful for your, your time today. I know it's the school holidays and I've, I've had you thinking really hard and deeply about your, your practice for over an hour and a half now. So just to finish off, what other bits of knowledge or resources would you recommend for teachers and school leaders? Yeah. I, I think I mentioned the idea of like codifying your practice and being able to talk about an aspect of your craft and share that same thing with others. And a book that really opened my eyes was Teach Like a Champion. I remember it arrived, uh, it's by Doug Limov. It arrived in a library box when I was in the NT. We were part of a remote library thing. And I looked at it and it's like Teach Like a Champion. And I can't remember the subtitle, but it's like prepare tips and tricks to prepare kids for college. I looked at it and went, I I don't think I'm going to read that one. It sounds, um, <laughs> it's pretty thick uh, as well. Yeah. Must have been a boring weekend because I did pick it up and started reading and then I just devoured it. And I've now read yeah. all three editions of it. Yeah. Uh, and it just talks about so many different elements of your craft and in ways of how they work, how they don't work, what, what it looks like. So aspects of checking for understanding, how, how exactly that can look, which is pretty amazing to then be able to share with other teachers. If you're looking at literacy, Lynn Stone's work, Reading for Life, Spelling for Life, and she's got Language for Life as well. They're, they're remarkable. Also Christopher Such's Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading. And then the Direct Instruction Mathematics book, is an expensive tone, but one that's absolutely opened my eyes there. There's also a couple of really great conferences that happen. Sharing best practice happen across Australia. There's some amazing ones there. I helped organize the Ballarat one the last couple of years, which have been, it's it's just such a rich experience to hear from other educators and what they're doing. And there's also Research Ed is another conference that's pretty fantastic. And podcasts like this one. I know I've got a few education podcasts lined up and it's it's great being able to listen to the expertise and experience of other people and think about what that means for my own practice. Awesome. James, thank you for today. I think you've done a great job at bridging that gap between research and practice. And like I, I often refer to Gutton or 
foundational prep, you know, is, a, is a, the hardest year to teach because you're getting these kids in and that haven't had any structured learning necessarily before and and all of a sudden they're, they're at school five days a week. And, and so I'll take my hat off to not just you, but all teachers that are able to turn up for their, their kids in the first year of schooling. So yeah, thank you for today. And, and I'm sure uh, a lot of teachers will be really appreciative of the advice that you've given. Thank you, Brendan. Wow, what an amazing overview of what needs to be happening for students in their first year of school. I wish my daughters were able to get that sort of education. Here are my key takeaways. Evidence-based practice is crucial in teaching and teachers should prioritise using programs and strategies that have been proven effective. Scripted programs can actually free up teachers to be more responsive to students' needs and provide a, a structured framework for teaching. I love James' story about how his daughter's teachers approached him for help after seeing his Facebook post. I think it's just another example of how we have a responsibility to advocate for evidence-based practice because you never know how you might be helping. Really appreciated James sharing his experience seeing a psych and the importance for us all to look after our own well-being. Maintaining sanity in the classroom involves setting boundaries, practicing self-care and finding a balance between work and personal life. Applying the science of learning doesn't just mean that students sit in rows and listen to the teacher talk. James emphasised the movement that is involved in his lessons, the focus on students having opportunities to respond and that there is still plenty of time for play and even how learning can still be playful. As school leaders, we need to make decisions based on not only the needs of our students, but also our teachers. Scripted programs can provide the scaffolded support that teachers need in such a high cognitively demanding job. I thought his intentional brain breaks are something that is really needed, but can go terribly wrong if not implemented correctly. He mentioned going as fast as you can and as slow as you must when it comes to phonics progression. James gave a terrific example of the things that you, you only really pick up through experience when he spoke about his annoyance with children entering school having already learnt how to write their name when most of the time he has to correct misconceptions in their letter formation. He highlighted how young people are like sponges when it comes to wanting to know more information and how as teachers we can take advantage of that by continually building on what they know. His progressions for handwriting were starting the year off with using whiteboards, tracing letters and making letters out of Play-Doh then introducing a solid line for them to sit their letters on before introducing the dotted thirds. However, watch this space because he still feels that he can make further improvements. When it comes to writing, he gets them started with, with verbalising it, checking that it really is a sentence and avoiding run-ons before getting them to actually write it down. He learnt the importance of short, sharp bursts after encountering the problem of students writing pages of work that were littered with errors. James is another guest who has highlighted the importance of reviewing work and not being afraid to spend time doing it. Next episode, you'll hear from Dr. Jenny Donovan, CEO of the Australian Education Research Organisation. She has been integral in helping shift the balance in Australian education away from balanced literacy and towards the science of learning. So I'm super pumped to share that conversation with you all. However, that's it from me for today. And as always, stay curious, keep learning and teach with purpose. Bye for now.